heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Well, the narrative is moving quickly here in Second Samuel. We left off uh, having finished chapter 7, if memory serves. So, just to bring ourselves up to speed, of course, in chapter 5, David is anointed king over all of Israel, finally, actually anointed for the third time, first by Samuel, and um, then king over Judah, and now king over all of Israel, and the kingdom has been united under him. Then as we go into, uh, well, the end of chapter 5, we have two major victories of David over the Philistines, and uh, the Philistines, of course, continue to be enemies but these are two major victories that really establish David's kingship. And especially in contrast to that of Saul, where Saul has been uh, not exactly successful in terms of military uh, victory, conquest, that kind of thing. The Ark is brought to Jerusalem. Of course, uh, Michal objects to David's dancing, but nonetheless, not to lose the forest for the trees, the Ark is brought and that is huge because, of course, Saul could care less about these things unless they were mad, unless the Ark was a magic talisman to grant him military victory. He wasn't interested. David loves God. We see that already and uh, loves the things of God, including the Ark. Then we have this business in chapter 7 about uh, David and Nathan and David wanting to build a house for God, and God responding by saying, would you build a house for me? Rather, I'm going to build a house for you. Of course, this culminates in uh, David being allowed to do some of the planning, but then Solomon, David's son, is going to take over and build the house of the Lord. But uh, this promise that, that uh, David's house will be built by the Lord uh, of course, we took a look at that and how that refers both to Solomon uh, and to Christ, ultimately, and the true house and line of David being fulfilled in the work of Christ, who is our temple, and who is indeed David's son and David's Lord, David's heir, king of not only the, the Jews, but king over the whole world, Jew and Gentile. All right, well, that's really as brief a synopsis as I can give before we hit chapter 8, which here we're going to talk about David's military victories. You could really kind of deep dive on any one of these names or people groups, and we're simply not going to do that. It's beyond our purposes here uh, to simply be in God's Word and be moving through it at a relatively quick pace. So let's just take it for what it's worth. Uh, David is obviously granted great military success by the Lord. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Metheg Amah out of the hand of the Philistines. So we haven't heard of anything like this happening for, for quite some time. David actually expanding the kingdom, taking away a city of the Philistines. And he defeated Moab, and he measured them with a line, 
making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death and one line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. Again, you could deep dive on the Moabites, but ancient and longtime enemies of God's people, very cruel to God's people. And here, uh, what David does is basically slaughters two-thirds of them, leaving one-third, and the one-third are servants that give tribute. So they live in their land, but they give tribute to David's kingdom. So military conquest and enrichment, those are maybe, that's the twofold theme. You see in the first instance, he defeats the Philistines, is enriched by a city, defeats the Moabites, they bring him tribute. And I think we'll see this pattern continue. Verse 3, David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. If you look at the study note on this, Hadad, you can see that that's part of the name uh, Hadad-Azar. Hadad is the storm god of the Syrians. And his name means <laughs> Hadad is my help. So uh, again, you what you can see in a name like this is a reminder, at least to us, that the warfare between the nations is, a, is also a spiritual warfare between Yahweh, the true God, and these false gods and the people that follow them. So we see these things as having a spiritual component also, not nearly the neat, tidy separation of church and state with which we've become accustomed to think. Uh, that kind of idea is foreign here to the text of 2 Samuel. All right, then verse 4, And David took from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. Obviously, when you hamstring a horse, it can't be used for battle anymore. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezar, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So again, military victory, which is also theological victory, which then enriches David and his kingdom. In this case, we see the enrichment by uh, more who become his servants and will offer tribute, and then also some military enrichment here too. Verse 7, And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadad-Azar and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Beta and from Barothai, cities of Hadad-Azar, King David took very much bronze. So again, enrichment is the theme here. Uh, this has a messianic type um, in a very minor sense as Christ, uh, the true King David, converts the world 
um, converts people out of every nation, and those riches of the people of every nation are tithed and given to him for his kingdom and his work. He's enriched by the nations. And then ultimately this finds a fulfillment uh, in Revelation where the wealth and the wisdom and all the blessings of the nations are brought into the Lord. So what you see here is a microcosm of that great cosmic reality of which we all have part and share part. Uh, what we have as Gentiles, um, we give and bestow unto the Lord for his glory. And so, so he is enriched by and through us. And we who were not his people become his people, conquered by him, not through bloody warfare, but through warfare nonetheless, the spiritual warfare of holy baptism where he has conquered us and made us as his own, and now we fight as soldiers in the army of God, right alongside our David, our King, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of David. All right, so we have those themes in mind, too, when we're looking at all of this. All right, verse 9, the conquests continue, or the military victories continue. When Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadad-Azar, Toy sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezar and defeated him. For Hadadezar, boy, how many times can we say that name? Had, yeah, and I'm having a hard time with it, as you can tell. Well, had often been to war with Toy. All right, so they're ra- rivals. David defeated his rival, so Toy is sending him uh, Joram with uh, good tidings and all of this. And Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. These also King David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued. Here you go. From Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadad-Azar, the son of Rahab, king of Zobah. In other words, all the nations... In that, I mean, in that part of the world, it really, for their purposes, the ends of the earth uh, were brought in by David and dedicated to the Lord. And, of course, here we see a, just a beautiful, wonderful type of Christ Jesus. And, of course, as David is setting up shop in Jerusalem, uh, so too we're going to see Jesus in the same. That's the climax of Revelation. The new Jerusalem descends from the skies onto the new heavens and the new earth. And all the, all the wealth of the nations, that is us, uh, are brought in. And so you can see all of this is my, that David is doing his microcosm of what shall be at the end. All right, verse 13. And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Verse 15. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder, and Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, 
were priests, and Sariah was secretary, and Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and David's sons were priests. Uh, and of course, that doesn't mean Levitical priests. If you drop down to the study notes beginning at uh, verse 16, you'll see uh, some details here. Zeruiah, of course, is David's sister, and so that makes Joab his nephew. We, uh, we knew that before. Um, in regard to the Cherethites and the Pelethites, these are non-Israelite military units. So uh, Benaiah is obviously an Israelite, um, and he is over, it, verse 18 says, the Cherethites and the Pelethites. So these are, you know, conquered peoples. These are uh, non-Israelite military units that are now fighting for Israel. And Benaiah is a, Benaiah is a kind of a famous guy, uh, a mighty man of valor, a, a warrior. His claim to fame, I want to say it's in Chronicles where it says this, is he was face-to-face uh, -face with some other elite warrior from a non-Israelite uh, group, and, he, and Benaiah had no weapons and was barehanded against this fully armed guy, and he ended up uh, conquering him by using it, taking his own weapon from him and using it against him. So, I mean, more, more than just mere military prowess, this is a type and foreshadowing of exactly what Jesus does uh, with the cross. The cross is precisely the weapon that Satan was using against Jesus. Here, this will put an end to you. And it is that very weapon that Jesus snatches out of the devil's hand, as it were, and uses it to conquer and defeat the devil, to take away our sins, to undo death, and to put the devil to shame. So we can see that even, uh, even in a small story of, of the military prowess of Benaiah. All right, now we pick up a loose end from earlier in the story, all the way back when... Uh, Ishbosheth was still alive. You remember Ishbosheth was leading the divided kingdom against David, and Ishbosheth was one of the sons of uh, Saul. Saul had another son. We were introduced to him back in chapter 4. So if you want to turn back to chapter 4 with me, and we'll simply look at chapter 4, verse 4, and we'll remember that how this was kind of oddly inserted into the narrative. But it was done so intentionally because of what now is going to uh, come up in chapter 9. But chapter 4, verse 4, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. All right, so this would make it, whereas Ishbosheth is a son of Saul, this person is going to be a grandson of Saul. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan, you know, he lost his... Uh, he lost his father and his uh, grandfather in the same day. And when news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, that's where they were defeated in battle and put to death. Well, or such with Saul. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, she fell and, uh, or he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. All right. So Mephibosheth is really the last, uh, I mean, you have, you have Michal, of course, who's related to Saul, but sort of the last in the line 
is Mephibosheth. So back to, now to chapter 9, and we'll uh, find out why we were introduced to him at that point, which didn't make much sense until now. And David said, chapter 9, verse 1, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And we've talked at length about how David loves and shows honor to his enemies. Very Christ-like in this as well. Verse 2, Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. So this is really a, a beautiful picture because in in any other story, in any other way of thinking, the sitting king would see any male heir to the previous king as a threat, and he would seek out to destroy these. David seeks him out that he might have mercy and show kindness. And there's a beautiful type here of the man who is, who is crippled and should be an enemy, and David welcomes him into his house and to his table. And it's very much analogous to us, isn't it? We who are enemies by nature of God and crippled in our sins and trespasses and should be eradicated. And yet, what does the Lord do? Invites us, seeks us out, invites us into his home and even to his very table. So foreshadowing of the Lord's Supper, foreshadowing of the church here as well. Just a beautiful story. Verse 8, and he, uh, Mephibosheth, paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Where does that language come from? That's what David used to say to Saul. Uh, And now Saul's son, flesh and blood, is saying it to David. So what's going on here is, you know, and, and David, when David said it to Saul, it was pointing out Saul's injustice. When Mephibosheth is saying it to David. It's pointing out David's extreme graciousness. So showing great contrast there. Yeah, just a a wonderful uh, literary device there to, to make sure we see the contrast. All right. Um... 
verse 9, Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. So David comes into possession of what was considered Saul's... I mean, as a king, obviously, he had everything. But uh, of that, his own private property, possessions, etc., and now that belonged that had fallen into the hands of David, obviously. And so now David is telling Ziba that he has given it over to Mephibosheth. So this is, again, just grace upon grace. Verse 10, And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your masters, that's referring to Saul, your master's grandson, that's Mephibosheth, may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. So he's going to be the possessor of all of Saul's property and land. All of Saul's servants are going to be his servants. They're going to give food to Mephibosheth's entire household. But as for Mephibosheth himself, he will eat at my table. So wonderful, beautiful provision now for the entire family as well as all of the servants underneath the family of Mephibosheth, which of course is the family of Jonathan, which of course is the family of Saul. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Verse 11. 15 sons, could you imagine that? Whew. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that absolutely beautiful? You know, and that's how we ought to think of ourselves as we get to go forward to communion. You know, sons of the king. And we get, to, we get to be invited to that intimate communion and fellowship and be important to know, rightfully speaking, we would be his enemies. He would treat us as his own sons. And so, so we are. Just a beautiful, beautiful story of David's heart. And you can see now why the Lord says that David is a man after my own heart. I think this is a prime, prime example. I mean, this would have been unheard of. And this, by the way, oops, excuse me. This, by the way, also um, endears the people. My pocket's blowing up, and I wanted to make sure that nobody's getting rushed to the hospital or anything. So, um, Where was I now? Yeah, well, we'll just simply, simply leave it there. That's uh, Mephibosheth goes to David's table like one of the king's sons. Okay, verse 12, and Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Um, let me see if the study note says something about why. I think, that, I mean, that's clearly emphasized because of the typological reading that I've, that I've been given. Uh, but I'm curious about... 
Hmm. Yeah, I don't see anything. Only, only the study note points out in verse 12 that Micah is a possible contender for the throne and that you can go see 1 Chronicles chapter 8, verse 34 and following uh, for that. I guess, I guess maybe that's the point, is that David is having compassion. Uh, when you were lame in both your feet, I think that this might be a point worth bringing out too. It's less, it's less so now in our context, in our culture to be sure, but at that time, uh, physical injury and debility were frequently seen as done to you by God because of what you deserve. So there's, there's a kind of shame that goes along with it. And, you know, you can see that even in the disciples and, and the followers of Jesus asking, who, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You know, that kind of thing. So, uh, David, I think that's meant to show David's extreme kindness and mercy to him. And even when he has a son named Micah, who's a potential contender for the throne, uh, David continues to bless him and Micah as well. All right. That's chapter 9. Any thoughts, any questions you have? Anything stand out to you that, that you want to mention? Yes. I just looked back in chapter 8 and just wanted to see if you had any thoughts on it. On verse 15, it says, exactly I wanted right. to hear your thoughts. Or yeah. That line just stuck out to me from the whole chapter. I thought it was so great. That's a great point. Yeah, it stuck out to me too. I just didn't make any comment on it. But uh, so for those of you online who are watching, we're talking about chapter 8, verse 15. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. And we were talking about just just how fantastic that sounds, <laughs> given our context where... I mean, no matter what side of the aisle you sit on or what policies you favor or don't favor, we would all almost unanimously agree that there's a lack of justice and equity on all fronts in our country. It's so refreshing to see this, and would that, uh, would that our nation would have a conversion unto the Lord and seek his ways, um, and even if, not, even if not seek his ways and, and, and be saved and have a true spiritual uh, repentance and turn and, and renewal, at bare minimum, just turn away from the insanity uh, back to more sane, just, equitable uh, government. Now, I think, too, one of the things, and, and then I'll get, I'll get your hand, Alice, but, uh, but one of the things I would point out, too, is David actually, and, and this verse serves the purpose, but, but David in his person shows uh, how tightly linked justice and mercy are biblically. We do this thing in the, in the Lutheran tradition, which is, which is fine and very, in many respects very helpful, where we separate and contrast justice and mercy. No doubt you've heard it preached or said, do you want justice or do you want mercy, right? Um, because, uh, you know, justice would be something like, well, we would all be in hell, Right? Because that would be strict justice. The, because of our service of sin, that, the wages of that sin is death. That's justly what we uh, are owed. And then it's God's grace, right, apart from justice or in contrast to the justice where he gives us what we do not deserve and saves and reconciles us. Okay? Uh, not taking anything away from that. That's a, that's a fine and fair distinction to make. But one of the things you see repeatedly in the Old Testament and repeatedly
repeatedly in the lips of Jesus, I would argue to the pen of Paul, is that this idea of righteousness really uh, overlaps and involves both justice and mercy. Both justice and mercy. To be just is to be merciful, and to be merciful is to be just. And there is an art, there is a way in which these two are in fact one. You think you see it embodied in David. He's very, very just. And, and the text says as much. It's publicly acknowledged as much. But he's also very, very merciful. And those two, those, those things go hand in hand. Let me give you an example because it was just this last Sunday's text. And I didn't draw out this point at all in my sermon. I had too many other points and it was getting long as it is. But I, but I certainly could have made this point. Do you remember the, the story that Jesus tells uh, about the unforgiving servant? Okay, so... When, when the, uh, the unforgiving servant, he owes the 10,000 talents to the master, and the master forgives him. Okay. Then he goes out and finds the man who owes him uh, 100 denarii. All right. Substantial debt, but nothing compared to what he was forgiven. All right, so here's the question, and it really shows the problem with making too sharp or hard of a distinction between justice and mercy. When, when uh, he who had been forgiven the 10,000, found the man who owed him 100 denarii. When he was choking him, was he being unjust or was he being unmerciful? The answer is actually yes. Because he, how, was, how was he being unjust? Well, he had just been forgiven everything. It would have been just for him to forgive. You see, so not only is he not merciful, he's also not just, right? And that, and that, to me, that text is one of any number of texts we could use, but very much illustrates where that distinction, that sharp distinction between justice and mercy isn't helpful. Justice and mercy are very frequently one. And really, then you, you see the beauty of that, of that biblical language of righteousness. What is righteous? Justice and mercy, rightly enacted, rightly proportioned. That's really what righteousness is. So, so when Jesus says, you know, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, um, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I could go on. But it's like that's, that's both justice and mercy. It's being rightly ordered. It's being as... Right. Yes, exactly right. Exactly right. So, I, I mean, the text doesn't go into too much detail. I suspect that, again, given the time and the circumstances, Mephibosheth was, was likely afraid for his life. In fact, when this servant, Ziba, is called to David and asked, Ziba may well have been frightened. Uh, and and may have been, may have been uh, it may have been a great act of faith for Ziba to even like hand over the details on Mephibosheth, right? Here's where he is, here's where he's living, etc. Because what would Saul have done if the shoe were on the other foot? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So what what might David do? The fact that Ziba trusts him 
really shows the character of David and how that was publicly acknowledged, that David was trustworthy, that he was just and merciful. And, and then as you said so well, Alice, just, it's just an incredible picture of how he shows mercy to Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth, for his part, is a very likable guy also, as we've seen so far. He's uh, a son after Jonathan humbles himself before David, receives the graces, isn't snotty or snide. Certain biblical characters would say, no, I'd rather die than eat at your table, <laughs> you know? Not Mephibosheth. So he shows a, a very a good-naturedness here. All right. Very good. Well, thank you for those reflections. We could certainly reflect more. This is a beautiful text, a beautiful section. All right, chapter 10, verse 1. After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanun, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. Yeah, you can go dig back in numbers for all of this background. It's just not background given to us. Uh, but there's a treaty going on. That's what uh, your study note says on, on point two, verse two. Um, de- dealt loyally, that is, they honored the treaty between each other. Okay. So David sent by his servants uh, to console him concerning his father. Now, the Ammonites are not exactly like great friends with David. Again, go back to chapter 8, verse 12, and you can see that the Ammonites are listed right after Edom and Moab as those whom David subdued. So these are enemies, and these are people that David had had subdued. David puts a treaty in place, probably, uh, though the text doesn't specifically say, probably it's in regard to service and or tribute. And then... uh, Hanon, uh, the enemy of David, right? I mean, they were military enemies. They were political enemies. Uh, Then they had this alliance. David uh, brought about this covenant with Hanon. Now, Hanon died. And he said, I will deal loyally with Hanon, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. That is, he observed the, the covenant that we put in place after their military defeat. He treated me honorably. I'll treat him honorably. So, David, again, being kind here to his enemies... So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan, their lord, Do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and spy it out and overthrow it? Well, clearly that's not what David intends. That's what they think, thinking ill of David, and so they poison the mind of uh, the son of Hanan. Verse 4. Or, excuse me, did I say, have I got this messed up? Hanan, his son. I'm sorry, I have gotten this confused. I'm sorry, I probably terribly confused you. I'm suffering from name soup here. Uh, too much of it. Hanun is his son. Hanun is his son. After this, the king of Ammonites, the king of the Ammonites is here unnamed. Hanun, his son. Pardon me, you'll have to correct that in the last few minutes of, of talk that I was giving. 
All right, so it is uh, with Hanan that David is uh, dealing. Verse 4, so Hanan took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each. Now, I don't even have to be an ancient Israelite to tell you that. That'd be embarrassing. Yeah, I don't want half of a beard. It'd look ridiculous. Um, and then the only way to remedy that is what? Either to painstakingly let it grow out or shave the other. Yeah, and, and it used to be that having, uh, having no beard was an embarrassment. To It might still be in strict, uh, strict Jewish custom. Um, aren't those the guys that have the, long, the Orthodox Jews? They got the long beard and they're not allowed to shave. So similar principle, to shave your face and uh, to be an ancient Hebrew with a shaved face was a great embarrassment. So there's no good remedy to this. Hanan took, and I think it gets worse. Yeah, it does get worse. Hanan took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips, gave them miniskirts, and sent them away. So this is quite the shameful treatment. I don't need to go into detail here. When it was told David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. Okay, so we're learning a lot about David here. Again, he shows kindness to his enemies, or yeah, right, by going off to Hanan and to comfort him at the loss of his father, yet, yet again. Um, David's good is repaid with evil, profound evil, and insult is given to his servants. Now here we learn something else about David. He goes as the king to his servants who had been ashamed in order to comfort them. And that's incredible. Because, again, kings are too busy. They're too important. I mean, they've got harems to tend and wars to start. They're not going to be out comforting their servants, uh, you know, when they received an insult. But here David is. So, again, we see David's unique character. And in this respect, really a pastoral kind of heart where he is going to go to these men who are greatly ashamed. And the king said, remain at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. So we're not going to send you home to have everybody laugh at you. You're going to just hang out here in seclusion, grow your beards back, then come home. Uh, let me see. I, I'm going to dwell on this for a minute because obviously I have facial hair. So I've got to. Uh, so, th yeah, you're, you're, uh, <laughs> your study note on verse 4. Cut off their, uh, shave off and then cut off their, shave off their beards, cut off their garments. Grievous insult for the Israelites a man's beard was his greatest ornament. I like that. That should be embroidered on a pillow. A man's beard is his greatest ornament. To increase the insult, the long garments were cut off, exposing the men. Okay, well. All right. What is David going to do? Well, he's very just. He's very merciful. He's just done <laughs> mercy. That was not treated well. He's probably going to go for justice. So, verse 6. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David. We need to bring back this phraseology. It's been all the way throughout uh, First and Second Samuel. But we need to bring back this phraseology. I mean, how poetic, right? If you could just say, that person has become a stench to me. <laughs> or that, <laughs> that law has become a stench to me. <laughs> When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians. Yeah, right. Don't go apologize, which David might actually listen to. You know, 
look, my mind was poisoned against you by my men. Look, we're sorry we did this. We No. What do they do? The Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rahab and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Makkah with 1,000 men, and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. This is a very sizable force, all over some facial hair. Well, it was more than that, of course. No, more than that. Verse 7, and when David heard of it, he sent Joab. Ah, there's his, there's his main commander, Joab, and his nephew. And all the host of the mighty men. And the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah and of Rehob and the men of Tob and Makkah were by themselves in the open country. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him, both in front and in the rear, he's surrounded by these armies. He chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Of course, what isn't stated is if they're both too strong for either. <laughs> that plan wasn't on the table. Verse 12, be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. Which again is a fair bit more piety than we ever saw from Saul. Uh, even, even if there is a little bit of, uh, I don't know what the right word is here on the part of Joab. Obviously, he's a, he's a military commander. He's seen plenty of bloodshed and death. So this, this idea of let the Lord do what seems good to him can be read in a pious way. And I think that that's how we should. It can also be read as like, hey, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. Yeah. Okay. So... Uh, Verse 13, so Joab and the people who were with him drew near to battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai uh, and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. But when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together. And Hadad-Azar sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates. They came to Helam with Shobach, the commander of the army of Hadad-Azar, at their head. And when it was told David... He gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Halem. Uh, okay, well, so what's really going on is this thing is escalated and spiraled absolutely out of control. It's, it's almost become, I mean, this is an overstatement, but it's almost become a world war. I mean, it's huge. Tens and tens and tens of thousands of men and other countries and distant armies all being gathered, all because David went, sent men to go do the right thing and they had their beards shaved off and were given miniskirts and 
you know, then, then we have the attack from uh, the Ammonites when they realized that David despised them for what they had done. And we've got this huge escalation, and that, it even goes here into round two. Round one is won by Joab and uh, his brother Abishai. And now round two is such a big deal that David himself has to uh, gather all of Israel. So this is the an entire nation now, not just you know armies from these regions or whatever the case may be. It's the entire nation. So everything is escalated. Verse 17, And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam, or Helam. The Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him. And the Syrians fled before Israel. And David killed of the Syrians the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen. I mean, this is a huge military battle, a huge military defeat. Remember way back in, gosh, I think it was 1 Samuel, where Saul lost like 3,000 men and it was considered a serious blow. Well, here's 40,000 plus. All right, I broke off mid-sentence. The subject is still David. He wounded Shobach, the commander of their army, so that he died there. Uh, Shobach and all these names mentioned, these were probably like uh, celebrities of the ancient world, these renowned uh, commanders. Back then, of course, war was everything. Um, there was no such thing as culture unless you had an army to protect the nation so the culture could be created. And so... Uh, you basically have a huge importance put on military commanders and military might. Uh, from time to time, we have that in the U.S. From time to time. I was trying to remember some of the names from, um, like, our conflict in the Middle East. Uh, wasn't Schwarzkopf one? General Schwarzkopf. From time to time, we get sort of these heroes and these names come up. Uh, but probably nothing like it was at this time. So this is a big deal that this guy, Shobach, the commander of, uh, of the Syrians, is killed in conflict with David. Verse 19, And when all the kings who were servants of Hadadezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. That usually means tribute. So they pay. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. This, by the way, is, uh, I mean, not that I want to launch into this, not that this is at all my ex area of expertise, but this is why sometimes American foreign policy is likely to be very much confused by people in that part of the world. Because when when you as a nation pay money to another nation, that's called tribute. And you're acknowledging that if you're receiving money from other nations, you're greater than they are, right? This is, this is a big deal in terms of our foreign policy where it's just like, wait, hey, we'll send them some money so that they you know, can grow an infrastructure and stop wanting to kill us. Yeah, that's not always how it's perceived. It's perceived as, oh, they're frightened of us, they're afraid of us, thus they're paying us, you see. So, 
for what it's worth, I make that comment, and obviously uh, there are, I'm hardly an expert in this area, but it's one thing to keep in mind. All right. Did we finish that off? No, I'm sorry. I left uh, one sentence remaining in chapter 10. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. <laughs> all right. So again, what's the point and purpose of all of this? To show that God is fighting with David and making him a great conqueror, enriching David and enriching him over and against his, uh, his enemies. David continues to be just and merciful, righteous in the fullest sense, to rule internally and externally with equity, with kindness to his enemies. Um, but at the same time, just like our Lord Jesus, David isn't a, he's not a walking man. And you, uh, you, know, you, you repay David's kindness and his good with evil, and he's going to act Accordingly, and that's the same with our Lord Jesus. You know, he he gave himself for the life of the world, but those who despise him, spit on his sacrifice, don't want it. At the end, he says, "Fine, out you go." And so uh, we see that aspect here in microcosm with David and his rule as well. It has all been uh, overwhelmingly positive with David. Very, very few nits to pick with David up to this point, um, though perhaps certainly some with his collection of wives and some of the details there. Uh, but again, in the whole scope and scheme of things, David has uh, come off looking pretty good. You remember the judges, even the best of the judges, very frequently had great character flaws that, were, uh, that inevitably came out. Well, with David... The same is true, of course, famously with David and Bathsheba, and that's where we are at in his narrative. As much as David points us to Christ, there are also key ways in which he doesn't. As a sinful human being, he too fails and falls short of the glory of God. And so here we are, chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, um, they do that obviously because of, uh, you know, nobody wants to fight wars in the middle of uh, the winter, right? David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It's a really interesting section. You know, David was missing from, I mean, at least he isn't, he isn't named. Remember when Joab and Abishai go out and they defeat the Ammonites the first time? David isn't with them. So I'm not sure that there's anything inherently wrong with the king not being with the army. But given what occurs and given, this, given the way this is set up in verse 1, the time when the kings go out to battle but David remained at Jerusalem, there's at least a question there um, that maybe David was already from the start not doing what he should have been doing. Who knows? Take that, take that for what it's worth. Do with that what you will. But regardless of one's read of that, uh, that first verse, verse 2, is as follows. It happened late one afternoon 
when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, which that was very common. The roof is uh, it frequently was used as a, as a sort of an outside room, and um, you might even sleep up there if it was cooler. Um, that uh, he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness, thus, thus the bathing. So in the ancient world, as in other parts of uh, the world still today, uh, taking a daily shower isn't a thing, you know. Uh, so this is, uh, this is a luxury we have in this country. And as was the case, she was bathing for this reason. Now this is, this is almost certainly pointed out to amplify uh, David's sin. In this sense, uh, when a woman is purifying herself, in the Old Testament, she's thought to be ritually unclean. Okay? So not only is David sinning here grievously, committing adultery with a married woman, um, but uh, also then um, making himself unclean in the process, just amplifying the sin. All right, well, after this happens, then we're told that she returned to her house. That's the end of verse 4. Let me just check the study note. Yes, this indicates... Okay, yeah, the other... <laughs> the study note also points this out, that this indicates that Bathsheba was not pregnant when she lay with David. You can't exactly get a paternity test back then, so... That's, uh, that's how that detail is also functioning. All right, uh, verse 5, And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Uh, now the study note points out, too, that according to the law, they both should have been put to death for their sin. Reference to Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, and Deuteronomy 22, 22. So uh, this is a big deal. She knows it's a big deal. She sends to David saying, I am pregnant. Verse 6, So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. Obviously Uriah was out fighting under Joab. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. That's probably the pretense. Um, you know, I needed, I needed a messenger to come and tell me these things. But nonetheless, it, it was almost certainly suspicious to Uriah from the start. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. That's, a, um, that's likely an it's likely idiomatic. Uh, likely means um, enjoy your marital, your marital relationship. And Uriah went out of the king's house. 
which could have just been seen as like, you know, go see your wife, like a, a like kind of a leniency. You're back here, you were the messenger, I got the thing, now go see your wife, that, that kind of deal. So Uriah may, have, may well have bought into all of that. Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. And that's, you know, that's kind of odd, but again, hey, maybe he's just rewarding him for being a faithful messenger. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. So he is here showing solidarity with the army that is out fighting and camping. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. All right, well, try as David can. Obviously, he wants Uriah to go sleep with Bathsheba, his wife, so that the conception can be claimed to be his. Uriah's, I mean, really tragically, too faithful uh, to do that. He's in solidarity with the army. He wants to deprive himself of this. Um, and then David tries again. Let's get him drunk and see if we can make this thing happen. And it doesn't work. So uh, unfortunately and tragically, uh, things are going to go downhill from here. But we're out of time. So let's simply pick up with chapter 11, verse 14 next week. The Lord be with you.